This is not a practical joke. It's because I was complaining before that I'm always too short to see over the lectern. So <laughs> for the first time, I'm too tall. Thanks, that's perfect. Good morning. It's such a joy to be here, as uh, Pastor Mike's already mentioned, and as I know many of you know myself and several of my colleagues have flown from different parts of the world to be here for the weekend and do a series of events. We're spread across different churches this morning, but I was particularly excited and looking forward to being here with you. When I was first sent the details of this invitation, I was sent a link through to the website of the church just to get a feel for where I was coming in the community, the family that I'd be joining for the morning. And I clicked through to your sermon series of the last year just to get a feel for the journey that you've been on and just loved the themes that you've been speaking on, loved the concept of living in the red. And um, I know you've moved on now to a series called Gospel in Life. And I've been really praying for you as I've been preparing that... um, that that would be true of you, that you would be a people for whom the gospel is an integrated, coherent whole in every area of your lives, and that there would be an exponential increase, an exponential multiplication of the fruitfulness um, of you as a congregation as a result. I hope you won't mind my sermon today is not following any of the series that you've been following or the themes It's a very simple message, really, from the Gospel of John, looking at perhaps what is one of the most well-known and the most breathtaking of the claims of Jesus in declaring himself to be the way, the truth, and the life. The breadth and the scope of this claim is staggering, so I'm not going to be able to do anywhere near justice to it in the time that we've got together But what I'm hoping is that by the end of our time together, you'll have seen at least a hint, uh, a glimpse of the beauty of the gospel and what a staggering thing it is that's being offered to us here in these words of Christ. Let me get straight into it, and I'm going to be reading to you from the Gospel of John and chapter 14. If you've got a Bible, you may want to turn to John, and uh, I'll be reading from verses 1 to 7. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. And Jesus is speaking in picture language here about heaven. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also and you know the way to where I am going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Often when we're Can I bring this forward, will it? Just spread out, make myself at home. (laughs) Often when we're looking at this passage... Ah, great. Thank you. Let me take this off. Perfect. Thank you. Thank you so much. (laughs) Great. Thanks. Often when we're looking at this passage, it's just so tempting to jump in straight away to... Jesus' incredible statement, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and to take those three claims as headings and speak to them. 
But I think that we can miss a lot if we do that because we only hear one part of the conversation. In our own conversations, unfortunately, we're always just that little bit too quick to jump in with an answer before we've even listened to the question. But the Gospels record tens of questions that people brought to Jesus and present us with a wonderful model as Jesus got straight to the heart of the issue at stake and addressing the question behind the question. And his answers often left people perplexed, intrigued, often speechless at his wisdom and authority. And so what I want to try and do for the next half an hour or so is to look more carefully at the dialogue. In other words, at Thomas's question to Jesus, to look at the questions behind that question and then to unpack some of the profundity and the significance of Jesus's reply as he, with this one statement, addresses the deeper cry of the heart. Let me give you some of the context. In the preceding passage, Jesus records, uh, John records Jesus' conversations with his disciples in which he tells them again that he's about to leave them. It's not the first time that they're having this conversation and it isn't the last. Jesus, time and again, is gently trying to prepare his disciples for the deep trauma that they're about to experience as they're going to watch Jesus be crucified and with him all of their hopes and dreams. He's anticipating the despair and the fear that they're going to experience in the intervening days before they see the resurrected Jesus. And he's very strategic in his teaching in advance. He's taking these moments in these few sentences to not only prepare them emotionally for what is to come, but to teach them the truths that they will need to know in order to withstand the process, truths that will lead them to finally understand the significance of who it is that's standing amongst them and what it is that he is offering. But for the moment, the disciples are slow in understanding Jesus' discussion. There's a lot of confusion about what it is exactly that he's saying to them. They understand that he's leaving, but they don't know where he's going or why. And they're getting more and more unsettled with this anxious fear of the future as he talks about their imminent separation and the fact that they are going to disown him. And into this context of emotion and anxiety and unsettledness and confusion, Jesus turns to his disciples and says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. You know what I found surprising about these words is that they form a command. It's one that is intended to ring across the fiercest storms of life for all of us. But when we're carrying heavy burdens, it seems not only untenable in the moment that we should be able to follow such a command, but incredibly insensitive of Jesus to have issued it in the first place where we feel helpless in our sorrows. And you can imagine that the disciples must have been left thinking, well, (laughs) that's nice, Jesus. I wish my heart wasn't troubled. But how? How can I stop my heart from being troubled with all of the uncertainty of the future and the anxiety and the stress and the brokenness that we're all dealing with? But they don't even get a chance to voice an objection because Jesus immediately continues with these intriguing statements. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. 
In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. And you know the way to where I am going. And here, Thomas finally interjects with an objection. Having been told that he mustn't let his heart be troubled and that somehow connectedly, he doesn't know how, he must believe in God and in Jesus. And having been informed that he knows the way to where Jesus is going, he finally stops Jesus and says, well, hang on a minute. Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? It seems an obvious enough point, doesn't it? We don't know where you're going, how can we know the way? And I'd like to suggest that there are actually three separate questions going on here and they are questions out of which world views are constructed and they're relevant to each of us even though you may not have ever voiced them in quite this way and it is these deeper questions of the heart to which Jesus addresses his reply firstly where are we going Where are we going? Secondly, how do we get there? And thirdly, how do the answers to these questions connect in with the present troubles of the heart that we're experiencing so that we may not be troubled? And Jesus' answer in these seemingly simple words, I am the way and the truth and the life, is incredibly sophisticated at addressing all three questions. He builds layer upon layer across the same profound truths. And although the disciples just do not get it in the moment and in the course of that conversation, 11 of the 12 of them go on to live the rest of their lives and 10 of them to give their lives for the conviction of the truth that these words contain. Jesus, the way, the truth, the life. And I'm going to take each of these questions in turn and then consider Jesus' reply. So firstly, where are we going? I've been uh, married to the wonderful Toby Walker for six years now, and I'll be honest with you that it was with a little bit of concern that I came to the realization that the Walker family are very aptly named in that they love walking holidays, not a love that I can confess to share. It was... uh, almost like a bit of an initiation rite, and it took the better part of four years. But a couple of years ago, my husband finally convinced me, and we went on a walking holiday, and all all kitted out in our walking boots and walking gear and waterproofs. We were in the Scottish Highlands. And for some reason that doesn't seem quite as obvious to me in retrospect, we decided we weren't quite content with the gentle walks and climbs of our handbook, and decided instead that it would be a great idea if we climbed Ben Nevis, on one of the days that we were there. And incidentally, as I was recounting the story, well, complaining about the story, when I went back home, my friends put a bit of a dampener on it by reminding me that although Ben Nevis is the UK's highest mountain, it's better compared to a hill when compared with other mountains from around the world. But let me assure you anyway that it was a big deal as I huffed and puffed and complained and pushed and quite literally was pushed by my husband up this mountain. It was a beautiful day and we were actually just just as an offshoot at one point, seven hours in. My husband looked at me, he's so gracious, and said, maybe if we try and think of something positive. 
I realized I'd been complaining for seven hours straight. Anyway, it was a beautiful day, and we were looking forward to the view at the top. And slowly, as we were climbing up the mountain, sure enough, there was a, cl a cloud slowly descending down the mountain, so that as we reached about half an hour from the top, we were basically entirely engulfed in cloud. You literally couldn't see your hand in front of you. It was just total whiteout. So much so that we got to the summit and we had to ask some other people who we could hear in the middle distance on there whether that pile of rocks and the commemorative plaque was really it or whether we were looking for something else. And anyway, we took a very disappointing picture of the two of us really close up, surrounded in white, and painfully climbed back down. And given that I'm an apologist and I analyze every experience of life, as we were coming down the mountain, I couldn't help but feel that the experience had been an apt analogy for our present cultures. We are living in such driven cultures. We're amongst the wealthiest generations that has ever lived, the most developed, supposedly the most enlightened. And yet we're still striving striving for a sense of purpose, for meaning, for significance, for happiness. Many of us live with this kind of existential question, where am I going? We're looking to some far-off destination, that if only we could get there, then we think everything will be well. And we strive and push and work our way to this place where we thought we were going, only to get there and find a whiteout. It doesn't satisfy, there's nothing there. And very quickly the goalposts change again and we're looking to another far off place. I recently heard a quote from Jim Carrey, one of Hollywood's highest paid actors, who said in an interview, I wish everyone could get rich and famous and everything they ever dreamed of so that they could see that that's not the answer. And I think many of us have heard quotes like that before, and maybe we even know that actually the things that we're striving after, for many of us in this room, it might not be wealth and fame and success in those terms, but other things, we're striving, striving, striving. Maybe we know that actually those things won't satisfy. But have you noticed that that doesn't change the fundamental question? We're still in search of something, and that something is always just that little bit far off. I wonder if we stopped and thought about it for a moment, how we would answer the question, in all of this striving, where am I actually trying to get to? Where is it that I'm meant to be getting to? And this in part is the question that Thomas is asking of Jesus. Where am I meant to be going? For the last three years, the disciples have lived with Jesus, walked and talked with Jesus, and he's become the very center of their lives, giving them purpose and meaning and direction. And now they're suddenly hit with the realization that he's about to leave them. And in the unsettledness and uncertainty that that realization has brought, Thomas hears Jesus talk in metaphorical language about heaven and totally misunderstands the focus of Jesus's discussion. He assumes that there is some far-off place to which he must make his own way. And he wants to find out where he is going. In other words, to set his purpose in place and then work to get there. He's asking Jesus where.
And we, if we're not careful, can let our thinking become similarly weighted. We hit troubles and we begin to wish our present seasons away, always looking to some future place, some future date where we will be content. We can slip into thinking that some future success, prestige, relationship, wealth, health, marriage, children, or whatever else, I don't know what the specific thing will be for you, holds the key to us being well. We are often not like the Apostle Paul who wrote to the Philippians, I have learned the secret of being content in every and any situation. He was a man who'd really understood what Jesus is saying to his disciples here. Thomas comes to Jesus with aware. And Jesus, through the discussion, completely redefines the assumptions of that question by answering with a who. Notice Jesus' opening comments. In my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And later he tells his disciples, no one comes to the Father except through me. It's a very specific train of thought. Each time you're expecting him to end the sentence with a place. I will come and will take you to, and you're waiting to, you know, to hear to where, to a place. Instead he says, I will come and will take you to myself. And then he says, no one comes to the Father. You're expecting no one comes to a place. You're expecting the where of a future heaven. And each time, Jesus instead finishes the sentence with the person of God. Jesus is saying, your destination, this place where you will find your fulfillment and all will be well, is not a far-off place. Your destination is a person, God. It's an absolutely breathtaking and completely unique claim. In Hinduism, the question of where we're going is wrapped up in the circular karma in which we're reincarnated again and again until we finally lose ourselves and our identity in cosmic oneness. In Islam, the focus is on a heaven full of earthly pleasures, pleasures that were forbidden on earth, but which take center stage in heaven with the endless experience of wine and sex. Atheists tell us we're not going anywhere. We simply pass away into nothingness, but they're still searching on earth for a future place where we will be well, whilst many, many others look to some abstract concept of eternal happiness. Always the place is far off, and we're never really sure if we can make it. We can never know. We're always waiting to find out, waiting to that day to find out, were we enough? Did we do enough? Only the Christian gospel puts the person of God and the promise of relationship with God at the very center of our search for meaning. Jesus tells us it's not a where that we are seeking for as we strive for contentment. It is a who, deep and meaningful and fulfilling relationship with God. 
And you know, I think there's a real danger for Christians here because we can think that we've got it all in order. We've got our, our stuff is all sorted. But actually, it's so easy to slip from that focus on the relationship with God being the center, central reality of our lives, being the central fulfilling means and the end, the way and the destination. We can slip into doing, even doing things for God, ministry, church, faithfulness in the workplace, raising families. We can end up making these the pursuit, making these serving God the pursuit as opposed to God himself. And I know as I travel from place to place, there are times where I suddenly find myself feeling increasingly low. And it will always inevitably be because I have put the pursuit of the calling, serving God has become the objective as opposed to being with God in calling, which is a totally different thing. Let's get our own house in order again. The life-giving center is relationship, relationship with Jesus. So firstly, where are we going? Secondly, how do we get there? I wonder if you've ever had the unfortunate experience of looking at some damage in your house or your car and thinking that it was only a cosmetic issue, only to find that the problem is rooted in the very structure of the object, in the very foundations of the house or the engine of the car, and that the whole thing needs to be scrapped and started over. When we look at the various worldviews that make up our world, the various systems of thinking that provide a framework through which to understand and to view our world, it seems that all except the Christian faith insist that the problem, as we look across this broken world, is only cosmetic. In the search for meaning, for purpose, for significance, for a destiny that is secure, for a destination where all will be well. These worldviews are all rooted in one of three ways, in our thinking, our feeling, or our doing. And the pattern is the same regardless of the root. They tell us that if we simply think the right things, or if we just feel the right things, or if we just do the right things. It's always one of these three, thinking, feeling, doing, or some kind of combination. If we can just do, feel, think the right things in combination, then we will be good enough and we will have the life that we are after. And in our self-sufficient, self-oriented cultures, these philosophies are very appealing. We want to fix ourselves. We want to save ourselves. But the Christian faith starts with some very bad news. It tells us that our endless strivings to get there are only cosmetic changes that cannot succeed because the problem is fundamental to our very beings. We cannot save ourselves. We have become fundamentally broken. We have ignored God's ways, ignored God's laws, and we cannot recover from the consequences of doing that. One of my heroes of the faith is actually my boss, Michael Ramsden. And I think he puts it in a beautiful way. He says that we've tried to break the moral law, but actually it's impossible to do that. You end up breaking yourself whilst proving the law. And he gives this example. He says, suppose you were trying to break the law of gravity. So you run up to the top of a 10-story building. You put a big S on on your chest underpants outside your trousers, a big red cape, 
and you run and jump, what will you actually break? You see, we have broken ourselves. And as a result, we live in a broken world. But what's so incredible about the gospel message is that it doesn't end there. The Bible gives us this amazing insight that actually in the process we've broken the heart of God and that he, knowing that we could not fix the solution, we could not unbreak ourselves, sent his son. Jesus came and lived the perfect life, gave his life for us, And on the night before he was betrayed, he took some bread as a symbol of what was about to transpire, broke it, and said, this is my body, broken for you. Broken for you. His brokenness, so that our brokenness might be conclusively healed. He gave his life to redeem us. And we, by trusting him, effectively take on his life and are made new. He offers, in effect, an exchange, his life for ours, our life for his. I said before that every other philosophy and religion in our world, you have to think certain things or feel certain things or do certain things in order to become good enough. But it's just not enough to deal with our shame and our brokenness. Uniquely and wonderfully, the Christian message says that our starting point is a transformation of our being. It's completely the other way around. Our starting point is that we meet the person of Jesus Christ and we become born again. We become a new being through which we have a restored relationship with God. And as a result, we think feel and do differently. Can you see the reversal? We're not trying to think, feel, and do our, our way towards being good enough. Jesus's cross and resurrection means that we become a new person and as a result, think, feel, and do differently. It's an incredible reversal. And I love that Jesus looks to Thomas and says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. Am I about to get swept away by some passing plane or something? If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. In every other system, we are striving for a destination that is far off, both in time and in space, because we wait for this destination to which we will one day finally arrive, and then we'll be well. Jesus says, from now on, you can know him. In other words, we need not wait. Maybe you're here today, and you're thinking, actually, I would love to know Jesus, or you already have known him in some respect in the past, but you think, I'd love to know him more, but I just need to sort out my side of the stuff first. I need to just get my thinking right. I need to just, you know, there's some issues in my heart. I need to just resolve those first, or I need to get my life in order a little bit. I need to get myself sorted before I can approach. 
This is the unique invitation of the Christian faith, whether you've been a Christian for all your life or whether you've never made a commitment to follow Jesus. If you want to know Jesus, whether for the first time or better, you need not wait. Jesus says, from now on. The invitation is from now on. From this moment, your trajectory could be different. From now on, you can know him. You don't have to wait to be formally introduced You can just say, hi, I want to know you, and that's good enough for him. But let me just highlight one final thought here, and then I'll move on to the third and final question. The exchange at the heart of the gospel is completely free, in that Jesus, because of his great love for us, paid the heavy price on our behalf, and we go free. But although it is freely given, it is an exchange You can only have one life. It is not just a case of receiving his gift, his life. We exchange one life for another. Is it possible that you are trying to take on the life of Jesus without simultaneously putting down your own? It's a question about who's in the driving seat of your life. The Bible tells us if you want to follow Jesus, you have to lay down your life. It's, it's saying basically you have to allow Jesus to be in control of your life, which is a wonderful thing because he can be trusted, he loves you, and he has good plans for you. But you have to lay down your life, let him be in the driving seat, your life for his, his life for yours. You can only have one life. So where are we going? How do we get there? And finally, how does this help us in our troubles? It's really important that we remember Jesus's audience. He is talking to 12 men, 10 of whom he knows will go on to give their lives as martyrs for their belief in God. When Jesus tells them, let not your hearts be troubled, but believe in God, he is clearly not intimating that there will be an absence of trouble if only we believe. That's not it at all. In fact, the Bible repeatedly warns us that as we follow him, many troubles will come our way as we are persecuted by an unbelieving world. It is not in the absence of trouble in which peace is found. Jesus's point is far more profound. He is pointing to the key, as Paul wrote, of being content, of being at peace in any and every situation. The key is in relationship again, relationship with God and in the character of God. Jesus is telling the disciples that in believing in the saving work of God on the cross, in believing in what Jesus has done on their behalf, and in taking on his perfect life, our striving is over. Our search for fulfillment has found its home, and we can have an assuredness of salvation today. We're not waiting for a future date to find out if we've been good enough. That deeper struggle of our heart, our separation from our creator God has been conclusively overcome. We have been reconciled. But he's making a broader point as well. He's telling the disciples, believe in God. In other words, believe that what he has said about himself is true. 
You know, when we're going through the storms of life, we can begin to allow those storms to become the absolute truth for us so that they shape every area of our lives, our perception of everything else, including the character of God. Those storms can become the solid ground for us and everything else, a moving, a moving ship. But it doesn't even take a belief in God to realize that our circumstances and our perception of our circumstances is not solid ground. You don't need to have lived very long before you realize that there are some things that you believe passionately in the moment are the very best thing for you. And heaven shuts the door on them and you're left reeling, only to find a few weeks, months or years down the line that had you gone down that road, it would have been devastating. Other times we walk a journey that seems crippling in the moment, only to find that it proved to be a massive blessing in disguise and only the wisdom and the foresight of God could have seen how that one road leads to all the others. If we allow our circumstances to dictate our view of God rather than the Bible and the self-revelation of God to dictate our view of God, we will very quickly run aground. This is what Jesus is saying. In the midst of the storm, believe in God. In other words, trust him. Not trust him that all your problems will disappear, but amidst the crushing waves, let the solid ground be for you, his unchanging character. His promise to love you, to be faithful to you, to be with you, to fulfill all his purposes for your life, to give you a hope and a future. His promise to work all things to the good for those who love him. He can be trusted. Osganis puts it like this. Christians do not say to God, I do not understand you at all, but I trust you anyway. That would be suicidal. Rather, they say, Father, I do not understand you, but I trust you. Or more accurately, I do not understand you in this situation, but I do understand why I trust you anyway. It is therefore reasonable to trust even when we do not understand. We may be in the dark about what God is doing. We are not in the dark about God. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Here's the challenge for us. Jesus looks at his disciples and says, from now on you can know him. It is possible to live in the dark about God, not because no light exists, but because we have not acquainted ourselves with that light. How well do you really know him? Do you really know him? Let me end with a story and then I'll wrap all of this up. You may be familiar, or actually you probably won't be familiar with the name of Horatio Stafford, but I'm sure that you will be familiar with the hymn that he penned. He was a lawyer in the city of Chicago in the 1880s. In the early 1870s, he and his wife, Anna, suffered a series of shattering losses, financially and personally, the greatest of which was to lose their only son at the age of four to scarlet fever. There was a heavy toll on the family, and in 1873, Horatio and Anna decided that they would take their four daughters and travel to England for an extended break. 
Business developments at the last minute meant that Horatia sent his wife and his four daughters ahead of him with the intention of following afterwards. But it wasn't to be in the circumstances that he had imagined. There was a tragic collision in the seas. And only a few days later, he received this crushing telegram from his wife in Wales. It simply read, Saved Alone. Stafford got on the very next ship to join his wife, and the captain of that ship, aware of the personal tragedy that was unfolding around him, at one point called Stafford up to the bridge of the ship and said to him, we've done our best to calculate it, and we think that this will have been the spot at which the ship sunk. And history tells us that Stafford, on hearing that news, went back down to his cabin and put down these now famous words. He wrote, When peace like a river attendeth my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot that has taught me to say, it is well, it is well with my soul. Though Satan should buffet, though trial should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and has shed his own blood for my soul. My sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought, my sin not in part, but the whole, is nailed on the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, O oh, my soul. For me, be it Christ, be it Christ hence to live, if the seas above me shall roll. No pang shall be mine, for in death, as in life, thou wilt whisper thy peace to my soul. And Lord, haste the day when my faith shall be sight, the clouds be rolled back as a scroll, the trumpet shall sound, the Lord shall descend. Even so, it is well with my soul. He was a man who had understood the heart of Thomas's questions to Jesus and Jesus's incredible reply. I've been considering three questions. Where are we going? How do we get there? And how does this help us in our troubles? Let me wrap this up back in Jesus's profound answer. He is the way. He is both the journey and the destination. It is impossible to be in relationship with God without going through the way that Jesus had made for us. And our destination is to be with him. He is the truth. We can trust him that what he has said about himself is true. His promises can be entirely relied upon so that we can live this life in all of its troubles with the assuredness of what is to come and with a deep comfort of knowing that we walk hand in hand with God who is trustworthy. We look to heaven full of a sure hope that the promise of salvation will stand and that we are being saved into relationship with someone who can be relied upon. And he is the life. He offers us true life, perfect life, on which God looks with favor and through which we can enjoy relationship with God. And in calling himself the life, he reminds us that we can only have one life. We must either choose our own broken lives destined for death or his which lives eternally in the great exchange.
It's a seemingly simple statement, but it is packed with meaning. Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. I'm going to pray for us in a moment, but I just wanted to say that as I was preparing and I was thinking and praying for you guys, even this morning, I just felt God lay on my heart that you're a church that is really wanting to please God and bless God and serve God in the city. And I love that. That's one of the things that was really close to my heart, the theme of gospel in life. But I just wondered whether, for some of you, there had been a slight swerving, unintended, just as you're serving God and as you're pouring your energies into good things, whether there had been a slight change in the pursuit and that you had forgotten that central core, the first love relationship with God, that that is the center, that is the means and the end, the way and the destination. Even earlier we were singing that song, The Heart of Worship. It's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. I want to encourage you, if that's you, just take a moment with God. I believe that if that's you, you will be someone who has wanted to love God and wanted to serve God. It's just that somehow you've forgotten almost that he's the center, that relationship is the center. So I want to encourage you, from now on, you can change that trajectory again. And if you happen to be here and you're on the outside looking in, you're wondering what the heck I'm talking about, I'll be around for a while at the end. Please, I'd love to chat with you if you'd like to find out more about the Christian faith or about the Alpha course that this church is running. Let me just pray for us and I'll um, hand back. Father, we're so grateful to you for your amazing love for us, for the lengths that you were willing to go to to win us back out of our brokenness and our shame, and for the fact that you bestow on us life abundantly. Father, we just pray, would you be enabling us, helping us to live lives on the firm foundation of the centrality of that relationship so that whatever storms hit, we look to you and say, we don't understand you in this situation, but we do know why we trust you. We will build our house upon the rock. And I pray this all for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.